0: Hey everyone welcome back to another episode of game talk radio i'm greg as always and today we have a couple of stories that we're going to talk about one super super sad news uh yesterday stan lee passed away uh reported by tmz initially around two or three in the afternoon um and confirmed obviously um so very sad here um we're going to talk about uh microsoft recently had its xo 18 uh kind of uh, experience. It's their Xbox uh, show, their gaming show. And we're going to talk about uh, their acquisition of two more studios. And we're going to talk about the studios they've already acquired and whether that's good or not for them. Uh, and lastly, we're going to talk about the uh, the the quick fadeaway of Final Fantasy 15 and its remaining downloadable content. Uh, basically, Square Enix had a had a live stream where they announced that they were canceling most of the remaining projects that had to do with the game. Very, very strange. We're going to talk a little about that. Um, but uh, to begin... <clears throat> so to begin, we want to talk about uh, Stanley and his incredible legacy. And uh, I guess it's a little bit of a celebration of his life because uh, he, it, it, he is someone who created some of the most iconic characters. Uh, As we look here, uh, basically he co-created fictional characters including Spider-Man, Hulk, Doctor Strange, Fantastic Four, Daredevil, Black Panther, and the X-Men with uh, Jack Kirby and Steve uh, Ditko. And then with his brother, co-writer Larry Lieber, he created the characters Ant-Man, Iron Man, and Thor. I mean, that's like when you think of Marvel and you think of the staple franchises, that is, that's it right there. And so he was so influential. Um, I wasn't reading comic books until the early nineties. And at that point, you know, Stanley was doing some things here and there doing some one shots and stuff. But He wasn't really running like full books or anything. So, you know, I have to be really, uh, genuine when I say that, uh, that, you know, that none of what he, like, I wasn't reading his stuff necessarily, um, but him and these others had laid such a groundwork for the core and moral fiber of these characters that, It just resonated, I guess, and those characters then grew, and as they matured, you still saw that that basic beginning. Uh, Things like how, uh, you know, and, and oftentimes he, you know, Stan Lee used his characters as a way to talk about, you know, certain social progressions that were going on. Um, you had the X-Men were almost um, deliberately uh, tied to the civil rights movement and and how um, African-Americans were being treated and how they weren't given full rights or how they were hated against for being different. And that's where you came with this whole mutants uh, idea. Uh, and then you had obviously a lot of themes like the Hulk. You know, he talks about how the Hulk, uh, we all have a Hulk inside of us, like where we have this anger that, you know, we get too angry, we lash out. And And how do you deal with having this angry side? and uh, And then, of course, spider man one of the all time favorites you know dealing with somebody who is given a great amount of of power and then what he 's supposed to do with that responsibility uh once he has it and and how the decisions you make in life affect other people and so i don 't know how to say a lot of this without sounding too hokey and cheesy and and, and i don 't i don 't want to talk about like he affected me personally you know i didn't I didn't know him I unfortunately never got to meet him. Uh, as much as I would have liked to. I never got to. And so I don't I, I don't feel necessarily like a sadness, I guess with his passing. Um, But I do appreciate that he's gone and appreciate what he left for us. And so I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that he did to inspire me his characters and such and then just kind of go from there, which again, uh, is a little bit different from our normal video game chats, obviously, but it, it's it's something I thought was important and something worth talking about. And So I like to talk about my early comic book um, connections. And so the first comic book I ever wrote was or ever, excuse me, ever read was a Spider-Man comic. And so Spider-Man, along with the X-Men, is probably my all time favorite superheroes, Wolverine and Gambit in particular of the X-Men. But Spider-Man is probably my all time favorite. And, you know, one thing that always stuck out with me was the theme of with great power comes great responsibility. And it's such a, a little thing. But the basis for that whole character was that he had the ability to stop something. He could have stopped. it. And if you don't know the, the, the history of Spider-Man, if you've never seen the movies or anything, basically he's, he's, he's wrestling to try to get money, uh, you know, because Peter Parker needs money. So he decides to put his mask on and, and be a wrestler. And as he's leaving, the wrestling promoter doesn't pay him his money that he's supposed to. So then uh, you see like a a robber comes in, robs the wrestling promotion. And as he's leaving, you know, Peter Parker has the opportunity to stop him. And he doesn't basically, he, uh, he acts like, well, you know, you got what you deserved Uh, later on. Then it's revealed that the person who robbed that place then is the one who ends up killing uncle Ben. And so inaction sometimes is so, bad as a bad action, you know, is kind of the, 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 the theme they're trying to pitch there. And, and so I always, I always agreed with that. You know, I always felt like when you have the ability to do something, you have to do something like you, you have to. And, um, so I love that theme, you know, thematically like that, that spoke to me in a way, you know, like sometimes you are powerless and sometimes you can't do anything, but when you can, you have to. You know, I've always felt that way and I've kind of always lived my life that way. And so what I liked about Stan Lee and what I liked about his his characters that he helped co-create was that they were they were helping build, for me, like a, a moral compass, you know? And my, my mom and dad are awesome. Like, I had great parents growing up as well. Uh, so I don't want to say, like, that I didn't. But those things, like, they helped teach me to be... Like they helped me be a better person. They, they gave me this feeling of wanting to be a superhero. I wanted to be a hero. I didn't want to be a bad guy. I wanted to help people and I wanted to help people if I could. And, and so I certainly try to as often as I can, uh, you know. Um, but it, it was this very, I don't know, just this, this like, moral compass, I guess. Just a strong moral compass. Like this is right. This is wrong. You got to do what you can to make things right. And you do it, and 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 also the decision making skills. Um, I consider myself. I, I have a lot of stress, like being a business owner and and um, being like a leader and training people and trying to work with people in my area. Like, I, I consider myself to have quite a bit of responsibility, and I have to make a lot of decisions. I have to make a lot of big decisions that could affect multiple people, not just myself. And I like to I like to think that a lot of this 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 groundwork that was laid helped me make those decisions. And I can't say for sure that it does, but I, I obviously, I feel like it does. And, and so I've always appreciated that. Um, and, and one, a little lesser known, I suppose, about Stanley, uh, was, uh, about him and his wife. And so I, I've been with my wife now for almost four years. We've been married for one and, like, I, I love her so much. Um, I, I, and sometimes I, I can't put into words how I feel about her. Uh, she's just so incredible. And she is my counterpart. And last year, Stan Lee's wife passed away. And the way he talks about her um, and the way he, he tells stories are just like, like he was truly in love with her. And they were married for 69 years together for 70 years. I mean, that—that that is what we should all strive for. And to find that person who compliments us so much that, uh, that, that you could be with them for that long. And so I want to share the story that Stan Lee has shared about uh, how he met his wife. Um, so bear with me here as I read through this article. Uh, he recalled, quote, when I was young, there was one girl I drew. One body and face and hair. It was my idea of what a girl should be. The perfect woman. And when I got out of the army, somebody, a cousin of mine, knew a model, a hat model at a place called Layden Hats. He said, Stan, there's this really pretty girl named Betty. I think you'd like her. She might like you. Why don't you go over and ask her to lunch? Blah, blah, blah. He continued, so I went up to this place. Betty didn't answer the door, but Joan answered. And she was the head model. I took one look at her, and she was the girl I'd been drawing all my life. And then I heard the English accent, and I'm a nut for English accents. She said, may I help you? And I took a look at her, and I think I said something crazy like, I love you. I don't remember exactly, but anyway, I took her to lunch. I never met Betty, the other girl. I think I proposed to Joan at lunch. (laughs) And he goes on to recount another story that's uh, calling her, quote, the perfect wife. Quote, my wife and I are really so close, and yet I'm not sure if she's ever read a story I wrote. She's totally not into comics at all. She's the perfect wife for me. And, uh, so just that kind of thought there, um, again, that that's like what we should all strive to have in our lives. And, and I hope that if that's what you want, that that's what you find. I mean, that's touching to me, man. Like that, that is very, you know, that, that gets up in my head a little bit because I just, um, that's how I feel about my wife and, not to get like too personal about things, but I I feel like as you look around, it seems like there's more and more things that are falling apart. You know, relationships, you know, are, are no longer together. Friends are getting divorces. And, and it seems like it's more of a, like whether they were in love in the first place and just got married or had kids without whatever it is, but they just, they aren't sticking together and you see it everywhere. You hear about it everywhere. And to, to hear a story like this, that like survives through the ages, uh, is incredible. And, and I, hope that I'm lucky enough to have that feeling for any amount of years close to what he got to experience it for um and and along with that not to get like super heavy here but along with that can you even imagine what it felt like when she passed away now typically women live longer than men so as a man it's it's a tad comforting knowing that I hopefully will never have to live through that, that the uh, that the love of my life um, will be around after me. So I don't have to deal with that loss, unfortunately, meaning she would have to deal with the loss of me if she so feels as I do about her. And I sure hope she does. But. Uh, so. I can only imagine the heartbreak he felt when he lost her. And obviously, as you get older, um, that's like all he's known his whole life was her and being with her. And to love someone that much and to lose them has to be incredibly um, difficult. And so uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know what he felt. But I know he also went through a whole a horrible year, ever since she passed away, which was, um, reports of elder abuse and, um, him having to like have a new person in charge of his estate, I guess. And, and people were trying to like, his manager was trying to push out his family or something like it was crazy stuff. And he was trapped in the middle. And so it's seemingly they had got all that sorted. Uh, and then obviously, uh, Stan Lee passed away yesterday at the age of 95 years old. Um, and, and one interesting tidbit, there's going to be a lot of interesting things that come out a lot of great stories, a lot of great information that comes out over the next days and weeks as people share their experiences and their stories. But one thing that really stuck out to me was that Stanley oftentimes thought about giving up. He thought about quitting because he wasn't being super successful. Um, and he, he made his most successful comic, the fantastic four. Um, he created that when he was 39 years old is the article I read the other day or uh, yesterday. So he was seemingly, I mean, he lived to 95, but almost halfway through his life when he achieved, you know, the beginning of his success. So if you're 20 years old, 25 years old, 30 years old, 35 years, I'm 37 years old, you're 37 years old, and if I haven't achieved everything I want to achieve yet in this life, it's not over. You know, you have plenty of time. And so I think that's a great lesson to pick up from him, a great lesson to learn from someone who, uh, you know, really embraced everything that he could. Uh, here's a quote. Now Marvel did a really uh, a nice little um, remembering Stanley. And so, uh, here's a quote from Stanley right at the top of the page quote. I used to be embarrassed because I was just a comic book writer while other people were building bridges or going on to medical careers. And then I began to realize entertainment is one of the most important things in people's lives without it that might go off the deep end. I feel that if you're able to entertain, you're doing a good thing. <clears throat> and I've always loved entertaining people. And, and obviously this YouTube channel is pretty small, but I, I take that very seriously too and and we need stuff like this you need comedians you need um, dramas you need good writers you need good tv shows like we need entertainment it's kind of what keeps us grounded and sane i think (laughs) um so then uh i'm gonna read through here the marvel and disney remember stan lee and then uh, and then that'll be it, and we'll move on. But uh, I just wanted to cover this a little bit. Uh, today, Marvel Comics and the Walt Disney Company pause and reflect with great sadness on the passing of Marvel Chairman uh, Emeritus Stan Lee. <clears throat> Excuse me. With a heavy heart, we share our deepest condolences with his daughter and brother, and we honor and remember the creator, voice, and champion of Marvel. Stan Lee was an extraordinary as the characters he created a superhero in his own right to Marvel fans around the world. Stan had the power to inspire, to entertain, and to connect. The scale of his imagination was only exceeded by the size of his heart, said Bob Iger, chairman and CEO, of the Walt Disney Company. Stanley Martin Lieber, a.k.a. Stan Lee, loved the written word from an early age and wanted to craft stories like those in his favorite books and films, which he consumed uh, voraciously. From a simple upbringing in the teenage landscape of Manhattan, young Stanley, that's great. Young Stanley worked his way through a succession of jobs until the day he found himself an assistant at a comic book publishing company, Timely Comics. In between refilling artists' inkwells, erasing pencil lines from comic pages, and fetching an untold number of lunches, Stanley expressed his desire to write and create tales of his own. In the May 1941 issue of Captain America number no. 3, he got his wish. Readers would find A prose story in that issue. Captain America foils the traitor's revenge, sporting the byline of Stan Lee, and a star was born. As Stan's roles and tenure with Timely Comics grew and evolved, so did the company itself. With Stan at its helm, Timely Comics morphed first into Atlas Comics, and then into the name that would catapult it into legend and forever be synonymous with Stan Lee. Marvel Comics. As Marvel's editor in chief, Stan the Man Lee made his voice the voice of the stories themselves, writing virtually every Marvel title and working with such luminaries as Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, Don Heck, Gene Colin, and John Romita. Stan began building a universe of interlocking continuity, one where fans felt as though they could turn a street corner and run into a superhero. A rich collection of characters grew out of this nonstop plotting sessions with his artists, including the Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Iron uh, Thor, Iron Man, the Hulk, the X-Men, and many more. Today it would be almost impossible to find a corner of the Marvel universe that Stan didn't have a hand in. And so when you like feel the impact of that, and again, if you're not into comics, you're not into comic book movies, you know, I could see where this this you know seems like just another passing of a celebrity. <clears throat> and, and it is. And, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of lamenting someone's death. I'm more interested in celebrating someone's life. And I think to know that he touched so many people laid a foundation for other inspired people to, in, to then entertain people too, because many great writers and comic book writers that were inspired by him went on to create great things. And so this lasting legacy, this this planted seed that grew into what we have today is really um, it can't be overstated. And so just an incredible uh, person, incredibly charitable as well. I mean, besides just his his contributions to the entertainment medium, I mean, there were so many things that they tried to do uh charity wise. I mean, he has a Stanley foundation dedicated to literacy, um, was, was very giving with his time. Um, and, and obviously he tried to do as many conventions as he could. He always tried to connect with fans as much as he could. Um, and obviously as he got older, that became more and more impossible, but just a, uh, you know, again, it's sad, but instead of lamenting that sadness, I'd rather celebrate his awesomeness. And, uh, I'll share with you in my final here, I'll share with you, uh, a few of the stories, but a friend of mine, Dustin and I, we were the, uh, the comic book guys in high school. So, or excuse me, in in grade school and middle school. So my friend Dustin and I played little league baseball together. And I grew up in a really small town where we had to drive a half hour to get to little league. So, um, we would ride together, my friend and I, and you know, we became very close. And I remember that he uh, was a huge, fantastic four fan me not so much. Uh, I've actually never really enjoyed Fantastic Four. I don't know why. Maybe I would if I if I found the right book to, to click with the characters. But I never really liked it. I was a big Spider Man guy. So was he. He was a big Avengers guy. I was a big Spider Man X Men. He was big Avengers Fantastic Four. And we would talk about comics all the time. We would we we would go to the local grocery store where they only had like one or two comics, and we would we would read through them, and we would you know that's where I bought my first comic book was at a grocery store, and um. And so it's just this really like it's it, all these memories are really great, and that was also a time when it was so uncool <laughs> to read comic books. Um, in our school, I I want to say we were the only two that I knew that read comics. I don't know anybody else who did, and and so we had to hide it, you know, like like me and him. We we were in baseball and we we played sports We played basketball together. We played sports together. So my favorite memories. Um, Though are going to his house after school or spending time at his house and playing the different Marvel Nintendo games. He had Spider-Man, um, Sinister Six for NES, which I have in my collection, and you know playing stuff like that. Uh, there was ju- just so many great memories with these comic books and these characters that were inspired by him. And so it, it, it's it's a it's a strong base of my entertainment enjoyment. I've always liked it, and I have, if I had to guess, I probably have a couple thousand comic books in my collection. You know, I've I've never been a huge diehard comic collector. I have hundreds of trade paperbacks because I read a lot of comics. I like to read them. I don't necessarily like to collect them, with the few exceptions like I have almost a complete Walking Dead series because I just really like that comic and stuff like that. But for the most part, I just really, you know, I I, I like I just loved the stories and uh, and then obviously that the movies lately have just kind of re reignited that for me. Um, but anyway, I don't really know where I was going with that story. It was just it was it's a great memory I have of him, and so we just we'd read comic books, we'd hide it from everybody else. I don't know anybody else who liked comics back then, but, but me and him did. And then we went and played ba- and then we went on baseball. Uh, when we were going to Little League, we would be reading comics in the back of my mom's car as she drove us there, and it was and it was awesome. So I, I don't know, just, just a great memory I have. And, and comic books, you know, more so than anything in the early days, were kind of my first forms of entertainment. Um, even more so before like TV and, and cartoons and stuff, or just as much as cartoons, I should say. Um, so once again, though, uh, please in the comments, if, if you like this video, uh, even if you don't like it, feel free to leave the comments, uh, leave in the comments, say things about your favorite comic book memories. You know, it doesn't have to be a memory with Stan Lee necessarily, but you know, leave, leave a comment. Uh, maybe, I don't know, like, like what's your favorite comic book memory. And it doesn't even have to be Marvel. It could be DC. It could be image. You know, what's your favorite comp here? Any, anything to like celebrate the, um, you know, an industry that was, you know, that's that's feeling a loss today, but to help celebrate its awesomeness in its entirety. Um. So, all right. So now that we're done with the Stan Lee piece, I want to. Let's see here. I got to get a few things in order and get ready for the next segment here. So bear with me, my, my podcast peoples. Um, <clears throat> all right, let's do this. Let's do this. All right. And then secondly, today on the podcast, we want to talk a little bit about the Microsoft XO 18, uh, press conference, the, uh, the, the, It's a quote-unquote global celebration of all things Xbox. And we want to talk a little bit about what happened there, but also about the recent news that Microsoft has also acquired, which wasn't really a surprise because the the rumors had been rumbling for quite some time. But they have uh, most recently acquired Obsidian, and in exile, entertainment makers of Bard's Tale, and then Obsidian uh, obviously creators of Pillars of Eternity. They made Fallout New Vegas. Uh, they did uh, just running off my head. They did uh, Alpha Protocol. They did South Park Stick of Truth. Um, uh, they've done a bunch of stuff. They did uh, Star Wars: Knights of the Old Republic Two. That's probably like when they first kind of burst onto the scene as people like really putting their name on something. And so what I also want to talk a little bit about in this is whether or not the purchase of all these studios is a good thing and kind of the interesting fan reactions I've been seeing to the news. So I don't think it's a stretch to say, and this isn't some crazy fanboyism. So I'm just going to say up front, I've always been a Sony guy over Microsoft. I had a very bad experience with Microsoft with the original Xbox and their customer support. So I've never been much of an Xbox guy, but I totally and absolutely appreciate what they've done for the business. Um, So, While I may prefer Sony consoles over Microsoft consoles, that doesn't mean that I can't be unbiased in my opinion when we talk about these sort of things. And so I don't think it's unfair to say that Microsoft has had a tough time this generation against the PlayStation 4. When the PlayStation 3 came out, it was a year after the Xbox 360. It was $100 more, at least. And it was during a terrible economic beginning of an economic downturn that along with i think a certain level of arrogance by sony caused microsoft to steal so much market share from sony that they had established with the playstation 2 the playstation 2 we've talked about numbers before so i'm not going to go through system console selling numbers but the playstation 2 is still the highest selling console of all time And it was an incredible system. They got so many fans for it. Like they built this a a massive, massive user base. And then when the PS3 came out, I want to say a little bit of its arrogance, but more so I think it was, it was, it was, it was the perfect storm, right? Of things to screw up, which is funny because I think Microsoft did the same thing when the, uh, when the Xbox one came out. But so a little bit of arrogance, a little bit of bad economic timing and some bad decisions all lead to essentially with the failure of the launch of the PlayStation three. And so over time, Sony worked very, very hard to get a lot of that back, but they lost a ton of users to the Xbox 360. Many people left the Sony brand from PlayStation two and got a 360 either one because it was out first two because it was cheaper or three. There were just better games on that system, especially in the beginning. Microsoft not only had a year head start, but since it was easier to make games for companies like Ubisoft would make all their games for the Xbox and then port them to PS3. Oftentimes the ports were, were terrible compared to the original, even though the PlayStation three was technically more powerful. And so you had a lot of weird, you know, you know, so my point is that Sony lost a lot of market share with that. A lot of market share that Sony has worked very, very hard to get back with the PlayStation four. I, while there are a few hiccups with the backwards compatibility and with the crossplay issues, besides that, I would say that Sony has almost had a perfect console generation this generation. They had the pricing right. They had the design right. They had the durability of the consoles seemingly right. No major issues with any hardware. The software lineups, I mean, they keep seemingly getting better every year. I mean, Microsoft has just been really struggling to get software out, and Sony's been doing more every year, and they're making sure that they have these three or four must-have Sony exclusives every single year. Well, Microsoft took note of that, and one of the things we've been hearing over the last year or so is that Microsoft is getting very aggressive with their games division. So that comes with a lot of announcements. Uh, Most notably here, we're going to talk about at E3, they announced the acquisitions of Ninja Theory. Uh, These guys have made Heavenly Sword, Enslaved, DMC, and Hellblade. Playground Games, I guess they officially bought them when they were just working for them before, so these guys have done the uh, Forza Horizon. Undead Labs, who is the creators of, um, or is co-founders of Arena, and they worked on uh, State of Decay. Compulsion Games, which are the creators of We Happy Few, which I still haven't played. It's it very good, though. Um, and there's a new studio in Santa Monica called The Initiative, which is formal Crystal Dynamics devs. And then just at the XO18 event, they announced the, again, as we said, Obsidian Entertainment and Exile Entertainment. So... That is a pretty aggressive move, <laughs> not to mention that recently they acquired Mojang uh, from Notch, uh, so they bought Minecraft and everything involved there, uh, and, and so they've been very, very aggressive software-wise. It's, it's interesting to watch when there's a, a console war, when you watch what each side didn't do well and you watch them try to fix it. Sony is working on something big with backwards compatibility. We know it's coming. Microsoft said, you know, we didn't have enough games, we have to do something. And they got very aggressive. Now, I think we have to think a little bit bigger, though, than Microsoft versus Sony, right? I think we have to really look at the future. Microsoft wants to be the first, the the first truly streaming and 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 the first popular mainstream streaming video game service. They're laying a lot of groundwork this generation, which a lot of people could argue very fairly I think that that uh this generation seems to be a kind of a wash for them like they're moving on, right? They're thinking to the future already. And so because these studios they've acquired, they're not going to be pumping out any software in the next year. You know, these these games take 2 to 3 years to make now. Big budget AAA titles take 2 to 3 years to make. So you've, you know, you've almost conceded this generation, which to be fair, I mean, PlayStation had a huge Sony had a huge lead. So that's nothing wrong with that. I think to say, you know, what, let's really think to the future. Let's think long term on this. And I think long term for them is the streaming service. We've already seen that everything that comes out on Xbox comes out on PC, that's first party. When you have the Xbox game pass, you cross by and you get access to both. So they're trying to create this shared cross by kind of universe, which is something that Sony's also tried to do a little bit with their Vita, PS3, PSP, and, like, PS4. Like, Vita, PS3, and PS, um, P. if you have those three devices and you buy, like, a PlayStation 1 Classic, you can play it on any device. So that that's kind of a good, you know, Sony's thinking of the same thing, but it hasn't really been elevated to this level. Microsoft recently announced that Game Pass, which you pay yearly or monthly for, and you get access to all their games, including first-party games the day they're out. So they're trying to move to a subscription based model, which you know, they're, they're already rumblings that the project Scarlet, the next Xbox, could be uh, in two forms. one, an actual console and one just a streaming box similar to like a Roku, where you're just streaming games from their servers. So there's a whole bunch of interesting things coming down the pipeline. And Microsoft's thinking to the future. So we have to think with all these acquisitions. this isn't just, to beat Sony next generation. This is to be the ultimate hub of everything you want to play video game related. I I don't want to say they're necessarily going after Steam, but they're going after that model of buy games individually on a storefront, download them through that company's app or that company's launcher. Like they want to change how we do that. And I think that's good. First of all, I think, I think it's a good thing Um, but I have my reservations. So if you asked me, is buying up all these studios a good thing for the studios? Well, let's, let's start with, let's say, is, is Microsoft buying all these studios a good thing for Microsoft short-term? Yes. Long-term? Yes. I don't really see any downside to Microsoft buying these studios. If you ask me if it's good for the studios, what I'll say is short-term. Yes. Midterm, probably long-term. Maybe. And the reason I say that is because Microsoft is known, like many big companies are, for studio closures. They purchase a studio, they manage it, studio does well, studio starts to struggle, studio is closed and broken up, and all their employees are scattered to the other Microsoft studios. So after E3, IGN had an article kind of bringing it all together, so I'm going to bring this up here, and... So let's talk about a couple. So the first up, Fossa Studios. Remember them? Uh, they were founded in 1995, bought by Microsoft in '99, and closed in 2007. Uh, Fossa had worked on Crimson Skies, Mech Assault, One and Two, um, Shadowrun. So they had they had a bunch of properties. Um, let's see. Uh, yep. Um, uh, let's see. Yep. And so and apparently that was kind of their last game was Shadowrun. Bungie. So Bungie was founded in 91, bought by Microsoft in 2000, with Halo obviously launching on the Xbox. And while not shut down, they essentially bought themselves back from Microsoft. So essentially, the heads of Bungie threatened Microsoft with, well, if you don't let us buy ourselves back, we're just going to all quit and make a new studio. So you can either let us buy our name back or you know, we're going to leave anyway. And so Microsoft was smart and took the money or took the took, took the money for the name and they could have it back. Uh, Digital Anvil. They were founded in 96, bought by Microsoft in 2000, closed in 2006. Now this is something interesting. You're seeing a lot bought in 2000, bought in 2000, bought in 99. A lot of these studios were bought preparing to launch the original Xbox. So they have these spurts of, if we want to join the video game business, we have to buy up these studios um so digital anvil uh xbox exclusive brute force uh that seems to be their their uh the first title they worked uh this the founders worked on wing commander and star lancer and then as that studio i think their only game was brute force um ensemble now ensemble was founded in 95 bought by Microsoft in 2001, closed in 2008. Ensemble uh was known for its Age of Empires games <clears throat> and Age of Mythology. Uh then they were tasked with making Halo Wars, which Halo Wars was really pretty great. You know, it was it was a good RTS, it was different. It sold super well in the beginning. Pissed off, I would say as an employee at GameStop when this game launched, I would say pissed off probably 25 to 30% of their fan base because they thought Halo Wars was going to be another first-person shooter. Like people literally had no idea that it was a strategy game. But it was like an RTS without the micromanagement, you know, just use the units go through and it added to the the story, it gave you a different perspective, which I thought was really good for the Halo franchise, like to grow a franchise, you need to, you know, expand not only its story, but you need to expand its its presentation, I guess I would say. Um, so uh, and then they got so they got closed in 2008. Rare, obviously, one of the biggest names founded in 85, bought by Microsoft in 2002 status still alive so rare in some form still exists at microsoft in name at least so they're keeping the name around they're apparently working on a new battletoads game uh they released the rare replay collection uh for xbox one um yeah you know they're still out there they recently did sea of thieves that's their their latest which is kind of that online um you know games as a service style game where it's meant to just be continuously played uh they're announcing a new game mode for that soon um but obviously rare when you go back to Rare's past, there's just an incredible stable of games there. Uh I mean you're talking Donkey Kong Country, Goldeneye, Perfect Dark, uh Donkey Kong Country, uh Donkey Kong sixty four, Diddy Kong Racing. I think they worked on the Mickey racing for N sixty four. Um I mean there's just a ton of stuff. You know, so Rare Rare was synonymous with some of the best stuff that came out. conquer's Bad for a Day. Um <laughs> you know, Rare was was top form Super Nintendo N64 bought by Microsoft and seemed to have stumbled a bit. there, really having a hard time finding like that next big hit. But again, when you have a company who who really is around from the original rare that made that company so great, you know, is anyone, you know, is it just a name now? Kind of like when you hear all these stories about, oh, Atari's back with Atari VCS. Like, well, is it really Atari though? Or is it some company that bought the naming rights to Atari? And they might have some guy who worked at Atari 20 years ago working there. Does it really like, does it have, is it that studio's like lifeblood and what made that studio so great? Probably not. Lionhead Studios, founded in 97, bought in 2006, closed in 2016. So Lionhead Studio uh, was Peter Molyneux. Uh, so dissatisfied Bullfrog production employees. Uh, they worked on Black and White. Fable is probably the one that most people would know them for. Um... I know there's other ones I'm missing, but Black and White, Fable. Um, let's see. I, I'm totally spacing all of a sudden. Um, so, but that was kind of Peter Molyneux, like his brainchild of like, we're going to do experimental stuff. We're going to think outside the box. Bought by Microsoft. Fable brought exclusively to the original Xbox, which when it originally was announced was called Project Ego. My brother and I were so excited for Fable when it was coming to PC. <laughs> like the things they were talking about in that game initially. And this more goes to Peter Molyneux's big promises that uh that they never delivered on or his big dreams that could never come to fruition but i remember they're talking about oh if you fought a lot and you got hit a lot in combat your body would start to show more scars if you swung a sword a lot you'd be a more beefy character if you were a mage but you were constantly in your lab casting spells and creating spells you'd you'd be more uh light-skinned pale-skinned and and gangly and such and it ended up coming out on Xbox and they couldn't do any of that stuff <laughs> so you know it ended up being kind of uh, not great. Uh, Fable had a lot of potential that was never realized, um, but enough where Microsoft bought them up, made it a, a console exclusive, and essentially milked it out to Fable 3. There's a Fable game for the Kinect. Then they were working on this kind of multiplayer Fable Legends that was actually in a beta phase, and they got canceled, and then closed Lionhead. Like it was just like like bang, bang, bang. That all happened at once. Uh, Big Park Studio, founded in 2007, bought in 2009, technically still alive. Uh, they worked on the Joyride game for Kinect. I don't i don't know what else they've been doing um all right they worked on some more connect games twisted pixel games and found in 2006 bought in 2011 and then separated twisted pixel was known for the maw explosion man uh, and then eventually the Gunstringer on xbox then uh let's see loco cycle i've never heard of that actually um the two companies part ways in 2015 and twisted pixel returned to its independent track Press play was founded in 2006, bought by Microsoft in 2012 and closed in 2016. Um, in the 2010 debut max and the magic marker. I've never heard of that. Interesting. Okay. Um, press play branched out from kid friendly games was at work on an intriguing cooperative survival action game called Knoxville in 2016. That's when Microsoft pulled the plug and shuttered the studio, leaving several employees to launch a new development house known as flash games. Then we talked about earlier, Mojang, founded in 2009, bought in 2014, and still kicking. This one is still alive and well, but it is the Microsoft juggernaut. So nothing's going to take this studio down uh, unless they, you know, ruin it somehow. But I can't possibly imagine. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so that's kind of all Microsoft had listed here. So uh, let's, or excuse me, IGN had listed here about it. So again, we go back to the thought of, is it a bad thing that they're buying these studios? No. And I think they are making a legitimate move to future proof their game division because there was a time not too long ago where Microsoft was thinking about scrapping the whole game division anyway. Like there's been many times. I mean, I, I want to say I have to look. I want to say the Xbox division still hasn't technically made any money for Microsoft or has made minuscule amounts. For Microsoft, as compare to the company that they are, Microsoft is a software juggernaut. So they have a division that's not making any money. They don't need the Xbox division to stay alive as a company. When the exact opposite of Sony, which can't seem to make money anywhere except in the PlayStation division. So very different um, company philosophies there. <clears throat> um, so it is a good thing. And, and I appreciate Microsoft not giving up on their fans because there is a loyal Xbox fan base out there that started with the original Xbox you know, kind of came up with this console, online console gaming generation. And they, they've moved to the 360 and now to the Xbox one and their fans deserve that. They deserve to be happy with the company they've been loyal to for all these years. So I'm very happy for them for that. Um, good for the studios. That's always a lot harder to say because the studios, I think short term, it's very good. A lot of these studios talk about not knowing if they're going to be open in, in three months down the road. And that's never good. Obviously, when you hear big stories about Telltale closing very abruptly, and then you hear stories about um, Ninja Theory talking about how, you know, if Sen- if Senua's sacrifice, if Hellblade hadn't done so well, it, they would have closed. You know, just crazy stuff. And you don't want to ever hear that. You don't want to hear about game studios closing, especially innovative ones, and you don't want to hear about that. But sometimes there is some loss when it comes to being purchased by a big studio. And yes, you get the big money, you get the big advertising budgets but then you get the big expectations and if those expectations aren't met they shut the studio down if your studio doesn't if your studio's name doesn't no longer has equity they'll break you apart take the talent move them to other studios so that they're still productive but you don't you know that studio and that team that sometimes is what came together um if you want to really and this has nothing to do with microsoft but really interesting um there's 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 a documentary about the creation of the video game darksiders and vigil entertainment or vigil games and it's so interesting to talk about how that game was really magical because of the team that made it and, and that combination. So if you say Microsoft buys Vigil, which Vigil's gone now, but my, my point being, if Microsoft buys Vigil and then they don't make a great game the next time out or they break them up and they split up the talent, that team was something special together. And, and I think there is something to be said about that. There is something about that team aspect, especially when you're in a creative environment that can really make the difference in a product. Um, and we'll see, you know, same with Obsidian, you know, they talked about how they've been struggling to, to stay independent now, you know, pillars of Eternity's done well, but not well enough where they're like safe, you know, and, and I can't speak to their budgets, but I can tell you that in my business, I mean, I, I would say it was probably the first four or five years until I finally felt where I could relax, not, not, not stop trying, but where I just didn't feel like I'd be closing in the next few months, you know? Like and and probably overreacting to that, but that was just my mentality was I'm not comfortable yet. You know, I want to get to the point where this thing's a well-oiled machine and it operates and we all do our things and it just it works. But it took a while to get there and I could see where Obsidian and other smaller studios are like, you know what? Yeah, we're successful now, but one mistake, one bad launch, one broken game that gets returned and we're out. And So I'm happy that they seem to have found an umbrella to keep them safe. But long term, I'm worried about studios like that. And oftentimes these people left companies to start their own studio so they wouldn't have to deal with stressful upper management, incredible crunch times and horrible deadlines. You know, so they went independent and I guess it's a different kind of stress, you know, worrying about if you'll be able to feed your family the next day or worried about if you'll be able to not get fired because your game's not done on time if you work for a big company. But either way, a lot of these people left their their old jobs for freedom and now they kind of rope back in. Now, I'm sure a lot of that comes down to money. And uh, I want to say when Infinity Ward, those guys, when they started their new studio, um, Weston Zampella, Zampinella, when they left... Uh, I don't know how much like they owned i don't know how much stock they i don't know how much money they were able to bank off their success at that company but if Microsoft buys obsidian and there's f- two or three people that own obsidian those people just got a huge payday and I guess maybe if they don't like the job and they leave in a year they don't care because they they were successful enough to get their their payday you know um and yeah uh, and then lastly about XO18 they finally did announce crackdown 3 has a release date of February 15th a lot of people' early uh, impressions are that it feels kind of empty, not a lot of stuff going on. But the original Crackdown game was the same way and was actually pretty great. So I'm not I'm not going to give that game a hard time until I play it. Um, I'm keeping my expectations very checked, <laughs> though. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get too crazy about that. But so one last time to to summarize, Microsoft's going on a buying spree of independent studios. I hope for the studio's sake that it works out well for them. I'm cautiously optimistic and I'm a little worried for the future of these franchises once they fail to deliver on those expectations of Microsoft. All right, podcast peoples. And then lastly, we're going to talk about, let me close some of these windows here. This is a weird one. I don't, I, th- this is beyond strange to me the way it was announced. Um, but let me uh, let me kick this on here. <clears throat> so lastly today we're going to talk about the cancellation or the, the the let me before I start that we're going to start with the strange story of a Final Fantasy live stream turned calling of Final Fantasy 15. <laughs> so Square Enix announces hey we're going to do a live stream about Final Fantasy 15 and people are like okay I'll watch that you know let's let's hear about it. Since last April they were announced that there were four more DLCs coming out. And so they do this live stream, and they first announce that seventy-five percent, so three of the four upcoming downloadable content for Final Fantasy XV have been canceled. Okay, so you do a live stream to announce that you're canceling seventy-five percent of the DLC, and to announce that Jimé Tabata, Tabata, uh, the man who took over for Tetsuya Nomura as the director of the game in 2013, has left Square Enix. So first of all, I have to say, why, why in hell, why in the hell would you do a live stream announcement to announce that your main guy from the project quit and that you're canceling a bunch of DLC? That's the sort of press release you put out on like a Friday afternoon and hope that none of the people pick it up and like it dies over the weekend. Okay. Like I don't, that's not something you celebrate typically. That's something you, you slip out and then forget about, um, that That's a really big deal. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about my experience with Final Fantasy XV later, um, but there were some other announcements. So, the Final Fantasy XV episode Arden will be released in March of 2019. A, sh- a short-form anime called Final Fantasy XV episode Arden Prologue has been announced. Teasers will be released on December 15th. Final Fantasy XV multiplayer Comrades has been announced for PS4 and Xbox One and will release on December 12th. The standalone version will include new bosses, costumes, and weapons. Players who have already purchased a previous version of Comrades will receive the game for free. Brand new players will be able to purchase the game for $10. So they're making a standalone of one of the DLC pieces from 15. Uh, collaboration with Final Fantasy 14 online titled Adventure from Another World has been announced. So they're crossing over 15 and 14. 14's the MMO, uh, which they've been doing a lot of crossovers. So that's fine. That's cool. But how weird. Um, just a weird way to announce it. And so Final Fantasy XV for me, I finished the game, it'll be two years ago this December or January. It was sometime around then that I finished it. Um, and, and all I can really say about Final Fantasy XV is that it was this close to being one of the greats. I truly believe that. And not that it was perfect by any stretch. And there were a lot of little steps that kept it... I keep watching this this GIF of him crying. It's making me so sad. okay. Here, why don't, we, why don't we put this on? We'll mute this, and then we'll just do this. So you guys have, have something to look on in the background while we're doing our live stream here. Um, so it, it, um, it was this close to being one of the all-time greats. I truly believe that. It's just, it fell short in so many ways. It was a great idea. And you can tell that there was a reason why this game survived development hell. And development hell is when a game is just in development forever, changes directors, a bunch of times, changes and uh, stu- internal studios changes names for crying out loud, and then finally comes out as Final Fantasy XV. I played through the whole game. There were little bugs and issues here, like certain combat issues, enemies being like immune to certain other things. That's not a big deal. That that stuff happens. The game was very open in the beginning, then streamlines and just bam goes incredibly linear at the end. So just very unbalanced, you know, um, and suffered from some weird time hopping story jumps that made the story convoluted and not feel very important. I still really liked the game. I thought the characters were really, uh, were really good compared to a lot of Final Fantasy games where some characters are just dull and uninteresting. Uh, I'm looking at you, Final Fantasy 13. Um, and so it, it had pieces there. Like it had these pieces of greatness and there, it was missing the person to bring it all together and not saying that it's Tabata's fault necessarily or Nomura's fault just that whatever it 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 was missing it was missing and and that hurt it and so I liked it I finished it I didn't play any of the DLC I didn't quite care to but it also they started the game with we're gonna from the beginning make this a multi-dimensional experience so you have to you know, there's an anime series on YouTube and there's this and there's this short story in this video and this video, all story elements outside of the game, which I'm not a fan of. I'd, I'd like the full story in the game and then supplements on the outside that can add to it. But typically I like that later, like give me the story first as you intended, then let me fill in the gaps. Don't make me fill in the gaps while playing the game or before playing the game. And so it had its chance. It, I really, I really believe that. And I don't think it's a waste of money. I think now you can get it used at my store for like 10 bucks. So it's it's worth playing. I really liked it. You know, I'm not a fan of the real-time combat that still implements, like, statistics for hit percentages and damage counters. <clears throat> but it wasn't bad. It was fine. <laughs> it wasn't great. It was fine. Um, But it was close. I really feel like it was close. And there was some some really touching story stuff in there that properly molded could have been one of the epics you know one of the final fantasy 6s and 7s um one of the 10s like it could have been there It was in my opinion it was close but it just fell short and that's okay not everything has to be perfect i guess but what a weird announcement just that you would m- basically say hey all these games are you know, all this dlc's canceled and our main guy's leaving enjoy the live stream <laughs> enjoy the other information here you go uh so a little strange there all right. With that said, that is the podcast for today, everyone. Um last week I didn't do a game of the week because I was wrapping it up because we were so we were so tight on time. But let's see today, I want to talk about something. Let's talk about something. Uh mm Mm, I already talked about Jackal, talking about Legendary Wings, talking about Metal about Metal Gear. Let's talk about Did I talk about Monster Party? Have I ever talked about mon- I might have talked about Monster if I have, then you get to hear it again. That's how great it is. Monster Party is a weird two D side scrolling platformer where you plays like a kid with a baseball bat. And you fight against all manner of monsters. It's a very spooky game. It looks very creepy, actually. And you go into houses, and you'll talk to plants. And The big mechanic is that your baseball bat can hit back projectiles to the enemies. And so a lot of bosses you have to beat that way by actually hitting the projectiles back at them. A really decent little platformer. Very weird. You get enough of these, like, glowing lightning streams, and then you turn into, like, a flying angel demon thing. And then you get to fight things and shoot blasts and stuff so very weird but it's kind of a fun not just for spooky times in october but play it uh, any time of the year it's it's fun it's not too bad it's very hard uh but it's weird and i want to say in japan they had all sorts because of their copyright working a little differently they had all sorts of like weirdly named monsters that were like officially licensed properties in the u.s so when they brought it to the u.s they're like yeah we have to change all this <laughs> like like the localization team for that game had to change just a massive amount of stuff But it's called Monster Party for the original Nintendo. Go check it out. Uh, I don't think you'll regret it. As always, thank you everybody so much for listening and watching. If you're listening to this on SoundCloud and you prefer it on iTunes, you can go to the podcast app. Search for Game Talk Radio. That will get you to the podcast. If you are listening to this on the podcast and you'd rather listen to it on YouTube or on SoundCloud, SoundCloud also is Game Talk Radio, YouTube, I'm part of a collaborative YouTube channel called The Drop Rate, where it's Jordan, Jeremy, and myself, and we basically do all types of different videos, we do a live podcast every Monday night on Twitch, which we upload to YouTube in its entirety, I typically take this podcast and chop it up into little clips for YouTube, Uh, just it's easier to consume that way, and... Yes. And so you can follow me on Twitter. I changed it. I had it up here. It's at drop rate, Greg. Sometimes, sometimes it's at game trade, Greg. Uh, it really just depends on what I got going on that week. So you'll find me with one of those two, just search for one of those two. You'll see the little Sprite guy of me wearing my shirt and, um, yeah. And so follow us in there. We can really, really appreciate any subscriptions on YouTube. It's youtube.com slash the drop rate, uh, or slash drop rate. I'm not sure which it's one of them. We had to change it to the on some and not the on the other look for the DR logo. It's gray and yellow. Um, that's us. And if you click on the channel, you'll see a ton of videos from us. We've got almost 3,500 subs, very close to 3,500. And we just keep grinding away. And I can't wait to get to 4,000 then 5,000 then 10,000. And hopefully, uh, we keep this dream alive. It's been a lot of fun, but as always, thank you again, everybody for listening. Thank you everybody for watching. Have a great day. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.